and they were killed for offering unauthorized fire on the altar of the Lord. The first reminder is that this is not just a bare ritual. There are serious implications uh, dealing with life and death when we approach God, and when we come to Him uh, in worship. And certainly in that setting, those things were felt severely. Serious business in uh, the Day of Atonement. We have the prescriptions for Aaron. What was he to do? Well, first, he was initially barred from going behind the veil, behind uh, the curtain to the most holy place. He had to go through uh, many steps before he could do that. And God's awesome presence would not abide a sinful man coming in there without being cleansed. He brings both a bull and a ram. He is to wear his priestly garments, which, in a sense, communicate the holiness of his office, as opposed to to the sinfulness that he would bring just of himself. It's really the the office that God ordains, the office of priest, and the garments that he wears that are a protection for him. And that, of course, is going to be contrasted with the holiness of the body of Jesus Christ. Our bodies are sinful. His body was perfect. In addition to the bull and the ram, there are two goats. Aaron is at one point to cast lots over the goats to see which one is sacrificed and which one is banished or sent off into the wilderness. He makes atonement for himself and then he enters behind the veil. He brings incense and coals and blood. He, having been cleansed, can then offer up an offering for the the sins of the people. He mixes blood. He counts the times he dips his finger into the blood and on and on it goes. All very serious and all very good. For by these things, Israel was able to trust in the mercy and the grace of God. We need to understand, looking back on it, in the way that Hebrews is talking about these things, but looking back on it was that God's covenant mercy, His grace, His forgiveness was active in these things because they carried with them God's blessing and commission. Until the Christ came, this was how God's people were to worship. So it is objectively true that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Nevertheless, as a faithful Israelite looked to these things and looked to the God of mercy and grace and covenant faithfulness, there was blessing. These things were not effectual in and of themselves, but God's covenant mercy and grace were active. The point is that without God's blessing, if God's blessing is removed or if redemptive history moves beyond these things, they then become empty, which was exactly the issue or one of the issues that the early church and particularly uh, Jewish believers had to wrestle with. All of these things were pointing to Christ and they point to his uh, superior ministry as our great high priest. So first tonight we'll consider the superiority of Jesus, the great high priest. We will then look to how we respond to having such a great high priest. And lastly, we will heed the warning of neglecting so great a priest with our lives. So first, the superiority of Jesus as our great high priest. He is a once-for-all priest. Hebrews 10 makes the point that with the Day of Atonement, with repeated sacrifices... They communicate something. You'll be back again. There will be more sin. There will need to be more forgiveness. And you will come back to make atonement for these sins. You will be back at next year's Day of Atonement. 
Christ comes not to offer the sacrifices of the old covenant, sin offerings, guilt offerings you have not uh, given to me, but a body. He has come to achieve righteousness in a human body through obedience. And so we have the, uh, the constant refrain of not only the author of Hebrews, the biblical writers of Jesus and his submission to the will of the Father. And we've really seen that in the Gospel of Matthew. The emphasis there, Jesus submitting to the will of the Father, because that is exactly what rebellious human beings do not do. And Jesus does it for us. Priests stand in the Old Covenant. They stand and they minister. We read that Christ, when he has offered up himself, he sits down. Priests stand, Christ sits. And we know what that communicates, right? The priests are ministering in an ongoing way as they are standing. Christ's work as priest is, uh, or his sacrificial work as priest is finished, and so he sits down. I'm ministering now as a pastor, so I'm standing. There will come a time later tonight, hopefully, where I will be sitting and resting. Usually by the time Michelle and I sit down at night, we try to sit down and we're falling asleep before we can say the first words to each other. But that's the way it goes. At some point tonight, I will sit when my work is complete. He's a once-for-all priest, and he offers up himself as a sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. And we know that, we understand that, and we rejoice in it. Why is he a perfect high priest? Because, firstly, of his work. The priestly work of Jesus does not find its efficacy, its effectiveness, in the blood of others. The high priest in Leviticus 16, he's trusting in the blood of these animals. Jesus uh, does not find efficacy in the blood of others, but in his own blood, which can wash away sins, for he himself is without sin. So we have that righteousness theme again. As I mentioned, the submission to the Father. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 9. And this is what's quoted in Hebrews. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. So this would be a a messianic psalm looking forward to Christ and highlighting his work of the Messiah. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. He submits to the will of his Father, and he comes under the law. He obeys the law of Moses. He obeys the eternal law of God. He he perfectly keeps the Ten Commandments. And righteousness is shown. Jesus says in Matthew 5, He has not come to abolish the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he says, Heaven and earth will not pass away until... uh, not." He says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He comes under the law. And he submits to it. And he keeps it. So he is righteous. He is a law keeper. He is a covenant keeper. And he becomes a curse for us. So this is the other part of his work. We, the first two, we think about Jesus and his active obedience. He accomplishes a righteousness that is shown forth. His passive obedience. He accepts suffering and all of the things done to him as he becomes a sacrifice for sin. 
He becomes a curse for us. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Why is he a perfect high priest? Because of his work. Because everything that he did was good. Everything that he did was righteous. He never broke one of the least of God's commandments. He was and always will be a sinless God-man. Not only because of his work, but also because of his person. He is a perfect high priest because he is God and man, two natures in one person. There's a lot of mystery bound up in this. I had a little project with a couple of my friends as we were, uh, a couple of my pastor friends as we were building up to Christmas time. We read some stuff on the Incarnation and we were meeting on Zoom because of it. We're all different parts of the country. And uh, so I thought it would be fun to do. And we're talking about these things, talking about them, talking about them. And uh, maybe not the best thought to fly through the mind of a pastor late on Friday afternoon. That's when we were doing this meeting. And, uh, but one of my friends says, if we're talking about these very mysterious things of the Incarnation, he says, how can anyone think they understand anything about the Incarnation of Christ? And it's even pastors, when we get together and we talk about the finer points of these things, they are wondrous. But Christ is a perfect uh, mediator, a perfect high priest, because of who he is in his person. He is God and man. One of the mysteries of the atonement is that Jesus Christ suffers as man, but his divine nature does not suffer. But his divinity adds value, glory, and wonder to his suffering. We know from the words of our catechism that the divine nature sustains Jesus as he undergoes his test. The divine nature, in a sense, pulls him along. We read in our catechism, by the power of his Godhead, he, that is Jesus, might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. And so, though mysterious, many theologians appeal to this, that because he is both God and man, the divine nature sustains him uh, in his time of trial. Thomas Watson says, Christ's Godhead supported the human nature so that it did not faint. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that Christ was thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and a surety. There it's saying, well, because he is divine, he is equipped to do all things well, and he cannot fail. Also, just the union of God and man in one person, there would be no possibility for a better mediator, someone who could reconcile man who had rebelled from God. God himself comes to be a savior. Jesus Christ as God and man increases value to the atonement. It adds worth and efficacy to his sufferings. The Bible in Acts chapter 20 speaks of the blood of God and the reason that phrase is used is because it's supposed to hit us with much more force. Not the blood of a mere man. Christ is God and man and he shed his blood. It doesn't mean that it's divine blood. It means that the God-man bled. And that's why we respond in worship with those songs like Amazing Love, How Can It Be? And love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, my all. 
His perfect Godhead sanctified the altar of his human sacrifice. His person, his work, and his person show us why he is a perfect high priest for us. What does he do as our high priest? Well, he first satisfies divine justice with his work on the cross and his offering that he can give. Uh, the righteousness that he achieves and accomplishes. Because of that, he is a perfect Savior. His blood can wash away sin. And his offering of righteousness, that righteousness can be imputed to all of those who believe. Not only that, so he presents his work and he can sit down at the right hand of the Father. His second part of his priestly work is that he continually intercedes for us. And this is certainly one of the most comforting things as a Christian. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, is at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for all of the elect, for all believers on the earth. Uh, It is because of Him that we can be assured of our forgiveness. It's because of His place there that we can be assured that that is where we will go because we are united to Him. It's because of His place there that we know that that human nature can be in the presence of God because Christ has won the, the right to be there. Think also about Him. Hebrews speaks of Him dealing gently as a high priest and Him sympathizing with our weaknesses. As you read the gospel stories, oftentimes you'll come across stories where Jesus reaches out and he touches a sinner. He touches someone who is unclean. He touches someone who normally probably would not have been touched in that day and age. And certainly if we saw those types of people today, uh, we ourselves would be afraid to touch. People with leprosy, uh, people who were outcasts. And that, of course, is illustrative of sinful nature. It's illustrative of sin itself. Jesus went from town to town. He went from place to place. He was often moved with compassion. And he often touched someone who would have been ritually unclean. But uh, Jesus and his purity overcomes the uncleanness of the sinner. Moved with compassion. And how that is supposed to comfort us in the sense that Jesus is a priest now is because he is filled with as much compassion now as he had in his earthly ministry. And so when we feel afflicted, when we are filled with doubts, when we feel weak in our faith, we can remember, when we feel weak in our sin, we can remember that our great high priest is filled with compassion. And in his work of intercession, he deals gently with sinners. He deals compassionately with sinners. He deals lovingly with those who have strayed from him, just as he did in his earthly ministry. To all of those who come to him in faith, that is what he does. Charles Spurgeon says this, O Jesus, what a comfort it is that thou hast pleaded our cause against our unseen enemies. You have countermined their minds and unmasked their ambushes. Here is a matter for joy, gratitude, hope, and confidence. We realize that just as we spoke last week about uh, Christ being the prophet of the church in all ages, really he is the source of our, of our knowledge and our saving knowledge, we realize that if it is true that ultimately the, blo- the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, then even old covenant believers as they were following God, trusting in him, coming under the regulations for worship, what was it 
that was ultimately taking away their sins? Well, it was the work of the mediator. In a mysterious way, those who had faith in the covenant promises were believing in the Christ. They were believing in the Messiah. And so on the last day, on the day of judgment, all of those who were saved by grace through faith before Christ and after, we will come to know and to fully understand that it was Jesus Christ who paid the price for their sins. Ultimately, it is only in our Savior that anyone will be forgiven. So he is superior as a great high priest in his work, in his person, in what he does, in his intercession, and in the fact that ultimately even those types and symbols uh, were pointing forward to him at the time they were in effect. How do you respond to such a great high priest? Well, Hebrews tells us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We read this uh, command to draw near, and it sounds very nice, and perhaps in the way that we've come to understand uh, our Christian doctrine and the blessing of having Christ, it, it is kind of a warm, comforting feeling, but the theme of drawing near to God is not always something that is safe. Nadab and Abihu, as we read in Leviticus, drew near to God and they died by offering strange fire. They were consumed. The old covenant sacrifices could not cleanse those who would draw near, Hebrews 10.1. Aaron was to be careful, even fearful, uh, and to delay his drawing near. Our own passage in Hebrews at the end of what we read tonight, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We are called, though, to draw near. So why can we draw near to God? We can only if we trust in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. We look inside, look to our faith. What is it that we're trusting in? What is our confidence as we come before our God? Is it only in Christ and his work and his blood? Christ has opened up the way through the veil, the veil that Aaron could not go through until atonement has been made. He goes through without offering a sin offering for himself. He goes through the veil because he is holy. He is righteous. Verse 20 of our passage says that way is opened through his flesh. It keeps appealing to these very earthy things to remind us Christ really was sacrificed, and his blood really was shed for sin. So we can draw near to God, not because we trust in ourselves, but it's a conscience that rests on Christ and knows that his blood is sufficient to cleanse all of your sins, all of them, perfectly. What does it mean to draw near? Well, we know it means basically to approach God, to come into his presence in a spiritual way, to come before him, to bring before him as an act of our heart, as an act of our soul, that which we believe will pass his scrutiny. To come before God in a spiritual sense, holding what we think is good enough. Is it our righteous deeds? Is it our courage? No, it's the blood of Christ. It's the work of Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. 
faith laying hold of Jesus and his work. That's what Hebrews means, the full assurance of faith. Faith like this, trusting in Christ this way, is faith that denies the evil conscience that would distrust the value of Christ's blood. This theme of the conscience in Hebrews, the conscience could not be cleansed with the blood of bulls and goats because we would know that uh, there is going to be another day of atonement, there's going to be uh, another sacrifice that the, the great high priest would have to offer, or the high priest would have to offer. But a cleansed conscience is saying, I know and I understand that Christ's sacrifice on the cross, at Calvary, on that day, was the once for all sacrifice for sin. And if I trust in it, if I look to him, accept his work, all of my sins are washed away. Drawing near is something that seems simple, and the more you chew on it, the more you're like, I don't know if I really understand or get what God is commanding me to do. It's an act of the soul coming near to God. It's one of those things that certainly requires faith, because remember, all of the things that God commands us to do in, his, in the covenant of grace, he grants them to us by his grace. And so if you are having trouble understanding this, understand that God grants it by his grace. So begin with trust, ask God, and seek his face by prayer to grant greater understanding and a, a greater knowledge of drawing near with a sincere heart. That theme of sincerity is so central uh, to the hearts of the believer, to be genuine, to be sincere. God demands those things. Secondly, we are to hold fast our confession. I want to just uh, read what it says once again. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So we come, we draw near to God. But the idea is we must never swerve. We must never renounce. We must never shrink back. And what holds us in all of that is our hope. Our hope that pushes us forward to remember that Christ's uh, efficacious sacrifice for us has cleansed us and God has put something before us and called us to hold on to it with hope, our profession or our confession. If we hold unswervingly to our hope, that shows that we understand the nature of the gospel. We understand the power of Christ's sacrifice. We understand that God has called us to continue on in this path and to hold on to our Savior until our dying breath. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says this, Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, he has broken through. He has obtained the blessing of heaven. Heaven awaits those who are trusting in Christ so hold fast. At the end of the road, you can be sure that Jesus Christ has won heaven for you. 
Jesus Christ went through the pains and the torments of hell for you, and he has won heaven for you, and heaven awaits. So hold fast. It's a great reminder this morning as we sang the church's one foundation, and as we sang that last verse, I was reminded of the, the many in our midst who have gone forth to be with Christ and who went to be with him in the year 2020, and to say, may we be like them. May we hold fast, that me on high we may dwell with thee one day. Hold fast, never swerve to the right or the left. First Timothy chapter 6 says this, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Take hold of it. Grasp it. Reach it. Seek it. Lay hold of it by faith. Our unwavering hope is, of course, anchored in God's character. How do we know that God grants heaven to those who are united with Christ, to those who are represented by this great high priest? Because God never fails to give his promises, because God never changes, because God is good, because God is perfect. He's the unchanging God. Wilhelmus Abrakel says this regarding God's Immutability. Believers, be comforted by the immutability of the Lord, for all the promises of which you are heirs will most certainly be fulfilled. Not one of them will fall upon the earth or be disannulled. Even though the circumstances appear to be so strange and so contrary to them, and in your opinion, the fulfillment of the promises is postponed so much longer than ought to be the case. God leads his children in these ways to cause them to trust in his word alone. He makes the promise obscure and causes the opposite to to transpire in order to demonstrate subsequently the immutability of his counsel that much more clearly. So because God never changes, hold fast to the hope. And then lastly, consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works. Let us consider how we may spur one another on, it says, toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, Let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. This last one, of course, is communally focused. It teaches us that we are to be very concerned about the sanctification and the growth in grace of each other. That our seeking God and seeking his face, growing in grace and attending to the word of God, to the reading of his word, to prayer... That's all bound up in how God is working in us and through us. We ought to be concerned with the lives of each other. We ought to be concerned to see others love Christ more and to be devoted to him more. A difficult time uh, to consider all of these things, but we are to understand the importance as much as we can of physical presence. To not give up meeting together. We know that there are some cases... Uh, in this crazy, topsy-turvy time where that is not always consistently possible, but we are to strive. We are to strive to have all of these things, to be physically present with one another. Um, You can all ask members of the council how much I was struggling with us being apart uh, late April and how long it had been and uh, my almost losing control of my emotions on a council meeting once, I think it was late April or early May. We need to be together. We need to see each other. We need to talk to one another. Uh, We need to be reminded that we love and care for each other. God uses all of those things to spur us on. 
So first, uh, look inward to examine whether you're trusting in Christ alone and his perfect sacrifice. Draw near to God, trusting in Christ alone. Look inward to see if that is what your faith is doing. And that's what your faith is laying hold of. Look inward. Secondly, look upward to be reminded of what you're striving towards. Our hope is eternal life with Christ, beholding our Savior and being with Him forever. Look inward, look upward, and then look outward to bring others along towards the glory of God. Be earnest to see your neighbor, your brother or sister in Christ, filled with a vision for the glory of God and a zeal for the glory of God as much as you are concerned with that for yourself. And then lastly, we heed the warning of the end of this chapter. If Christ is such a great high priest, then we dare not reject him. We dare not neglect him. Hebrews 10 verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? The point is that it is utterly reprehensible for someone to claim they understand the power, the depth, the wonder, the glory of Christ, and then go on living in the kinds of sin that ought never to be known or named among the people of God. He died for sins. He died for our sins. The Son of God, the Eternal One, those who deliberately run headlong into those sins show that though they claim to intimately know and understand the work of Christ, their heart shows something far different. Jesus says in Matthew, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. It's a humbling and in some some ways a horrifying text. It reminds us that God the Father will not allow the name of his Son to be mocked and to be trampled after his glorification. He gave his Son to come humbly and to offer himself as a meek king and savior. And he is glorified now. And God the Father will not abide his son to be mocked and to be trampled, especially by his own people. So pray that God would keep from you an evil and an unbelieving heart. The first and the greatest sin is unbelief. And what God commands most of all is belief in his son. Rejection of one of the laws of Moses is one thing, as Hebrews says. To reject God the son, to to reject uh, our great high priest, the glory of our salvation is quite another. We read about these things through the words of Jesus in the parable of the vineyard. When the owner sends the son, we are horrified to read that the tenants kill the son. More so, than they were, uh, more so than we were horrified when we read they killed the workers. So why would we live in such a way that we would put Christ back on the cross? That we would scorn him and his blood and his work? That we would say, I understand everything about how he 
went to the cross for me, but now I'm going to fill my life with utterly reprehensible sins. If you see his glory as high priest, then respond in the way that you are called and heed the warnings of scripture that if you truly understand him as your great high priest, we will respond and we will live in a fitting way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise and adoration. In the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen.